Hi everybody, my name is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute. Um, and we're recording this for a, a, a podcast conversation. Um, that's a co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Um, I'm really uh, grateful for the chance to have this post-screening conversation about this pretty amazing movie, Uncut Gems. Uh, I'd like for the um, our, our team to come up and join us now. We'll start with um, re-recording mixer Skip Livesay. On the end, composer Daniel Lopatin. Uh, co-writer and co-director Benny Safdie. And co-writer, co-director Josh Safdie. Thank you. So we're we're mic'd for uh, for the recording, but uh, handhelds for the room. this as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so before we uh, before right. we dive, you redid the room recently. We did. We new, did new, about, new about chairs, a year ago. Right? We, we made this into a, like proper Dolby Cinema with Dolby Vision Projector and Atmos and Atmos. Dolby Atmos yeah. Sound, which these guys just experienced. Oh man! So you're the first audience to hear the film in Atmos, aside from us when we were mixing. Oh, that is true. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Cheers. Atmos is incredible. It really is. Like you have such an ability to like move speaker to speaker. Even it's incredible. I remember Skip did one thing like, whoa, this is like insane. The, the <laughs> well, um, I wasn't going to lead with that, but since you brought it up, um, yeah, I'd love to just kind of dive in um, and and talk about you know I think when people think about Dolby Atmos, you know, Mr. Livesay on the end over here uh, won an Academy Award for mixing uh, Gravity. Uh, for Alfonso Cuaron. Thank you. And I think that that's the kind of movie that people tend to think about when they think about, you know, a Dolby Atmos kind of sound uh, extravaganza. Um, this movie uses Atmos in a very, very different way. So, um, Josh and Minnie, can you talk about, like, why did you guys want to use this technology and what did it do for this film? Um, well, I guess it's, we, we wanted the sound to be very immersive. Like we wanted a lot of layers of sound, a lot of sound effects, and we wanted the dialogue to kind of feel like you were there. And it was an obsession. And we didn't realize that like, the, we only knew of a 7-1, like the speakers that you can have. But then there was this idea that you could take the fidelity of all of this and then there were ceiling speakers and you could move things. And just this idea that you could take it to another level, like all of this stuff we were talking about, but taking it and making it this totally immersive experience with the sound was incredible. So it was like, okay, let's try it. And using the language of realism. Yeah, that's the thing. Is taking all of these kind of tricks, but making it so that it just felt more like, oh, this is what it would be like if you were there. The bathroom was on the left, and it sounded like this when it flushed through the walls and stuff like that. Well, there's in in life is not as convenient normally as uh, works of art where you, where you can choose to to spotlight certain things, but. But you know, life unfolds, and you take meaning from it as you want, and and you can focus. In, and so we wanted to kind of hint at that. I, there's a great there's a great story. Altman kind of famously pushed sound in, in incredible ways, and before the technology was even there, it would have been amazing to have seen Altman use Atmos. It would have just been special. And I know that there every, was every person will get his own his or her own channel. Yeah. Well, the story from McCabe and Mrs. Miller is at the premiere. Warren Beatty was sitting next to Altman, and 15 minutes of the movie, he turns to Altman, he goes, 
does the whole movie sound like this? <laughs> and Altman looked at me, he's like, yeah, isn't that awesome? And maybe was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> because he's, because Altman knows that life is not, as, movies shouldn't be, it should re reflect life in that regard, you know, that it should be, it, it should, there, you should have everything and you should be able to selectively tune things out, but they're still there. And that was what was so cool to, to work with, with Skip, at, you know, and Warren was, was like, we would sit in, in the mix room and we'd be able to watch, I mean, Warren, uh, Skip, Skip has an incredible, uh, and just from a mixing, we've learned, every, this entire process has been so educational for us because we were lucky enough to be surrounded by like insanely great A talent. And that was like humbling and strange the entire way, you know, uh, along in the journey. So when we got to Skip's room, it was, we would watch and we would like Hawkeye. He's like, you guys sit right here next to me. And it was great, <laughs> we were sitting right there. And we would, and we would, there was one particular thing that I, we loved watching Skip do is the way he used uh, reverb in, in a room and letting it uh, uh, map peaks with people screaming and stuff. So the way he's using, or the way he's working within realism and you're look, listening to it through the fidelity of so many speakers and, uh, it just, like Benny's saying, it became an immersive experience that was... Yeah, you guys were doing something in a really, in a fashion I'd never really seen in a movie before. And I got to see the movie for the first time at Telluride a few oh, weeks yeah. ago, um, which I think was just, that was just, it was, it was 7.1. 5.1, <laughs> I don't even think... Oh, was it 5.1? Yeah, I think it was But, I, I, you know, I had a, I, I found myself getting really tense in the first, like, 10 minutes of the movie. Um, and I was, because I, I wasn't able to get everything that was coming at me, you know, and, and, and I was just, I was really straining and I was getting really, like, very tense. And then I realized I'm just going to have to let go of this and kind of let it wash over me and kind of take what I can get. Um, and I think that that was a really powerful kind of conscious decision uh, on your part. I, I would love for you guys to talk about... It was tough. We actually had to go back and we, we worked on it, I think, uh, a little bit since we've done some more mixes. It's a, there's so many elements. You have score, you have a lot of background dialogue, you have a lot of SFX, and you have, you know, uh, spotlight dialogue, spotlight dialogue. So we, we went back since Telluride, actually, and, and we did even more work on it, so. Well, we toned it down a bit. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Made it more intimate, as Skip said. Well, there, the, there was like a din that we had had, because we recorded a bunch of ADR to add to the scene so that you could have these people talking. And it became, with the din that we had from the location, it wasn't quite working. We weren't really hearing it, but then we could actually isolate all these people in the background a little bit more. So it actually made it more of what we were going for. Well, so. we also, I remember we sent uh, Scott Rudin and Eli Bush the, the, the ADR script. It was like 45 pages. <laughs> It was no, we didn't, it that's was pretty, not necessary. That's, that's pretty crazy. It's, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't like we had all this looping that we had to do because things was all background and creative. And we were given, that was what was incredible about this production is we were we were allowed to do it. So it's like, oh wow, we can actually go and record. So we we, we really took, you know, the, the, we, we pulled on the rope until there was no slack left. <laughs> the, the scene with, with Kevin in the, in the, um, in the showroom, we brought in his friend Dash, who is, is in the scene, but we just literally played the scene back for him and said, okay, imagine you're in that showroom and just comment about things that you see, comment right. what Kevin's doing. And then he made himself Kevin's best friend in that like whole session. <laughs> and so he's in there, now he's in there a lot. And I just remember doing when we were cutting the ADR, we're just like, he's through the entire scene and it was. And it, then on top it, of it yeah. on set, we don't stop. We let 
if, if you and I are doing a scene together, like let's say we Sam would still Larry be would talking keep, also. And we would, yeah, we would <laughs> let everybody talk freely who aren't, and we and we're not like screaming action. So most people on the set don't even know that we've started that filming. You, that you're actually so rolling, there's yeah. just people talking and being themselves, and that sound is baked into your dialogue on the boom tracks because they're just talking in the room. So you have that in addition to ADR, and then we bring it to someone like Skip, like. Help us make, and sense we wouldn't of this. get. And we were very adamant: don't get rid of the boom track. Yeah, we are using all of them. <laughs> so, Skip, yeah, you got all this massive material that's coming your way. How do you? How, where do you start? Well, it's it's a bit of a detective job, but uh, thankfully I had these two detectives working with me, and they're both very very savvy. They they look at my session. I, I work in Pro Tools, so I have a Pro Tools in front of me, and they know exactly what's going on. So everything I do, they're like, no, just a little bit to the left. They, yeah, that little bit there, you know. So, so it was like three a three headed monster attacking all these tracks, and we had really good coverage in most cases. We had um, a boom track, sort of a room mic, but we also had lavaliers, uh, radio mics on almost every line, so we could mix and match, and we could do a, a really interesting balancing act between the very sort of dryish uh, ra radio mics and the very warm and reverberant boom mics. So it was really. Um, Bob Altman would have loved what we were doing. <laughs> he probably would have asked us to put more stuff in. As I worked with Bob a couple of times, and, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And there were usually around 24 tracks of stuff going on in, in the busier scenes. And they're all scripted lines as well. So it's kind of like my friend Alfonso Coran as well, where as much stuff as you can have happening, let's let it all happen and then sort it out mm -hmm. from there. So. Let's go too far and then back off. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, Benny, we, we were talking a little bit about this yesterday. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the first 10 to 15 minutes of a movie and the choices that filmmakers make to kind of where to start the story, where to get the audience into it. Um, one of the things that, I, that for me is super exciting about the sound design and the music on this film is um, it, 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 all these pieces contributed to make me feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and it really kind of gave me the experience of what Howard's life must be like uh, from an, you know, just an acoustic standpoint. So I wanted to ask you guys about, like how did you go about setting the language of what you were gonna, how you're gonna tell the story in the first 10 minutes and how you worked with Daniel on the score and Skip on, on the sound effects? I'd just like to say off the bat, I find it to be very comfortable uh, and uh, I, I take That's because you have problems, John. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Um, well, there's comfort in in knowing where everything is for us, even though it's it's a it's a it's a lot for us. It's like oh, it's all there. It's great. It's like you can keep track of it all. I find myself I'm happiest when I have a, I'm overstimulated and uh, and there's a lot going on and I can move at that speed a little bit. That's when I'm like most. I guess I'm happiest when I'm not thinking about like, when I'm distracted. Uh, what? No. <laughs> uh, <so>. uh, <laughs> We're all agreeing over here. Yeah. Um, so, so th that is, and I, and I will say that from a, from working on the, a score point of view, that was something that that was uh, kind of a barometer with with Dan was was uh, chasing this kind of ineffable, almost insatiable sound that made us feel. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, you know, with the previous movie we did, the score was. Um, kind of a pulse. It was kind of just something that was kind of ever-present and uh, it would come in and out. And this was, we were looking at it from more of like a new age 
the way new age music is looked at is in a, from a medicinal standpoint. Right. And uh, so in the beginning, yes, we did introduce. But we what's what's funny is is that people find I find that the audience is on edge with 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 uh, um, with the film uh, as they should because it's a, it's a thriller. Um, but I but. The, a lot of the music that we're using is taking inspiration from meditation music and and uh, like like, like in terms of the instrumentation and stuff, it feels like it whole, should be very soothing. Yeah. Right? The whole yeah. opening two and a half minutes of music is inspired by by chakra music, by music that is supposed to evoke, you know, certain parts of your chakra. Literally, like that's what there's the the that's what we were listening to. And Dan, we were trying to replicate this thing called a space bass. And uh, and that was funny, like with with Skip, like oh, it's the track called Space Base. He's like, sure, sure yeah. it is. You know, it's called the the Space Base track. Um, and so that was the first two minutes of music, and then that leads you into obviously Howard's colon, uh, and then and then uh, uh, it put dumps you off into this like prog, almost multi. There's a lot of live instruments and. And that is, you know, and, and all the different instruments are kind of somewhat suggesting towards all the different elements of this story. Yeah. So that is, and then add to it Wait. all the sound design. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, it's funny, as you're saying that, I remember it was just recently we were back when we were tweaking the mix. Skip's like, well, what do we do about this jackhammer that's in the background? And it's like, it's, it's, there's literally, we added a jackhammer to the scene where he's on the phone and there's the FDR going on in the background. And there's the music, and there's his lines. You were obsessed like, with the FDR in the background. I was obsessed yeah. with that. I, there was something about, because it, it, there's certain kind of ineffable sounds that you hear while you're in the city. Mm. This like whooshing of cars on a highway that you can catch just very faintly in the background. And it was always just like, I thought that was very important for when, where Howard lives, that sound is always there, almost like white noise. Like, foom, foom. And then you have these sirens. That's what we do in New York. There's so much noise that we all drown out at any time. Anyone who lives in any city, and then you go to like, you know, a rural place, and that silence is scary because it's just like, where's my bed? Where's my acoustic bed? I mean, I'm losing my hearing. I'm like, I've I've accepted that. I'm not even allowed to be part of the tech checks. I mean, that's why I wasn't here because I just said louder, (laughs) louder, louder. louder, louder. And then I remember we were teching Good Time at Cannes, and I was just like. (laughs) It doesn't I was, go any I was so angry. I was like, I can't hear it. <laughs> like, it's really loud. And then I remember the one of the, the French people there, they were sitting there, they were getting angry at me because I was like, has to be louder, has to be louder. So I'm just not a part of these things anymore. <laughs> so I, because I, because I just, to me, a volume knob is just on or off. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> there's no... <laughs> it's at 100% or zero. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. what I love about working with Skip is you just go in there, it's at, it's loud all the time. <laughs> there's no like, let's listen to it's it at a volume. Yeah. But it's part of the great tradition of filmmakers who don't have very good hearing. Bossing everyone around during the mix. Yeah, <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> Daniel, can you talk a little bit about? I noticed there was a, a credit in the uh, in the in the end credits for Moog. Can you talk a little bit about how the uh, how the how you built the score? Oh sure, yeah. Well, I think I, I I think to their credit too, when nothing is ever what it seems with these guys. So they say new age, but what they really mean is like and in opus that keeps changing and the they have very specific notes about what should happen even in, in terms of like a melodic progression so the mood might start with some kind of inspiration like that but then when you get into the nitty-gritty of like a moment to moment uh you have such intricate um directions it's all it's really quite like being directed and even when we had musicians in the studio and we were working with percussionists, uh, 
singers, uh, uh, saxophone player, flute. When when Josh was there, he he was basically like he was on set and he was really engaged. I, I felt the same stress that comes with being on set. Interesting. I did. I was. I would look at the performer and be like, "Oh, this is the clay. This is the clay. Wherever I have to. I have to direct." It was. It was yeah. stressful, actually. I actually didn't, in, I, for some, because when you get to that part of the process, Not so, you yeah. thought that's in the background. You don't have to, shooting a movie's terrible. So, like, you gotta, like, you're like, oh man, I'm back where I was. Finally, we're in post, oh, and, yeah, and exactly. now we're back. Sorry, I didn't set. you off. No, no, no. It's, but it actually, I think it, it kind of helped. I could see that it helped them, and it was, it was interesting. So you've worked with the you've worked with him uh, in the past, right? On on previous films, Moog? yeah, or us? Oh, with, with yeah. Moog. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. answer your question about that. But uh, well, we can come back to that. But I, um, at what point did you did you get involved? Did you were you um, talk with these guys before shooting? Were you feeding them stuff during cutting? Like how did the we'd been the time yeah we'd been I remember we were kicking around ideas for the score like going back to the early winter and where I was like sending. I was sending you like Jerry Goldsmith uh, unused score for Alienation <laughs> and all this stuff that was like orchestral but it had synth elements and that was actually something that somehow the spirit of that kind of continued even though we kind of attacked it from all these different angles from Q to Q. But yeah, we had been discussing in the winter and then I went off and I, and I wrote some like kind of almost like library music. It sounded kind of like 70s um, uh, uh, European library music with, with flutes played on mellotrons and very sweet things and I thought that was going to be the mood and then I was like well that's just chapter one <laughs> so we just kind of kept circling back and back until we had no more time left and it was May and it was time to, time to finish it um, but Moog was cool because they would, yeah. they would send that was amazing it was like magic to me we would, we'd be chasing this one sound and then Dan would get on the phone with Moog and they would they would send them an email him a patch to put into the new Moog one. Yeah, it was that was so foreign to me. I was like, hey, sending a patch. <laughs> it was going... crazy. Yeah, it was very serendipitous. I would imagine it's like that with certain lenses or something you have access to or like hitting up Kodak. <laughs> but that's how we 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 got very lucky. I I, you know, started this actually it was it was through Ryuchi Sakamoto, introduced me to someone at Moog. And we just started talking about music, really, just back and forth about the history of the company. I would never used Moog stuff. I was always using Japanese synths. Mm -hmm. And I think for for people who don't know, Moog obviously is a it's a it's a one of the very first you know music synthesizers. And I think most people really associate it with you know nineteen seventies kind of yeah. music have, or close encounters. I have a great anecdote that Isao Tomita told me about. He was one of the first people to buy the original Moog. He went to upstate New York, I think Buffalo or Rochester. Rochester? Wherever Cornell is. Wherever Cornell is. And he bought one of these machines. No one had any idea how to use it, but he was obsessed with Japanese guy. Brought it back. It was a big machine. Flew it back to Japan. Customs is like, what is this? He's like, it's a musical instrument. They go, make it play. He goes, I don't know how to yet. <laughs> and they're like, well, then you, until you can prove that it's a musical it's instrument, it's going to sit right here. It's staying in customs. <laughs> so he took the manual back to his office. Studied it, came back two weeks later. He's like, All right, I got it. Bunch of patch chords and all this stuff like that. And then he was like, All right, you ready? And, like, and they were like, Get it out of here. Uh, so then he brought it back and then it had no memory. 
so that he had to keep, so all the work he would do, he'd have to keep it on. And uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra would be the people during the daytime while he was at night. But that just shows you, this thing was like an alien object for humans to use. And it pretty much still still is. Yeah. Actually, I don't think I don't think Bob Moog, who's the creator of the instrument, even really intended on it becoming kind of this um, you know, part of cult musical culture. Like, I think he really was kind of trying to he was in, he was he was a scientist. He was experimenting with with uh, with um, this machine and actually it was his partner who basically said you know what if we attached a keyboard to this thing it would be a lot more useful and he was like well how are you going to do that he goes well let me go to the hardware store i'll get a doorbell and let's see how a doorbell works because that's kind of like what happens when you press a key you you depress your finger on it you hear something you take it off and it stops that's a doorbell so it's, a, it's basically one giant really complicated doorbell that makes sounds and and years later, and I never used Moog because, um, you know, I typically play chords with my left hand and a lead with my right. And and the Moogs are monophonic, means you, you can only play one note at a time. So it was never that useful for me. And I wasn't like in a prog band where I would like shred a Moog with one hand and play, <laughs> you know, I'm not that good. So finally it was this big moment for them where they were coming out with a with the polyphonic instrument so you could have you know multiple voices played at once and so I said I, I would love to try to play this they sent it to they sent it to me and then that was right when we started writing the score you know these guys would come in and see this crazy keyboard on the wall so intimidated right yeah so so it was fun it was basically just fun it was there it was new it was, and and some of the sounds that they had designed um as presets to be shipped with this keyboard were actually just really beautiful. A lot of the pads and atmospheric stuff, it was really what we were going for in terms of the sort of like cosmic... Was it 1874 with that pad? There was all kinds of... There was a million sounds that we that drew us into this kind of like cosmic world, which was, you know, helpful to play off of when we would play more specific progressions on an electric piano or a flute or whatever it was. Um... Skip, this is a question for you. I think, you know, when when we introduced Dolby Atmos in, in 2012, and I think one of the things that kind of surprised us was that the people who actually embraced it first and fastest were the music departments, um, as opposed to the sound effects departments, which kind of surprised us. But one of the things that we noticed was that, was that music mixers were pulling the music off of the screen into the first couple of sets of surrounds and just barely into the overheads just to kind of create some space um, and also get separate from the sound effects and the dialogue that were on the screen channels. But I was sitting in the back today and I was really um, kind of struck by how much separation there was in the music and how much how, you know, the, the various elements that you were positioning around in the 3D space. And so um, can you talk a little bit about the way you two worked together and how you, you mixed Daniel's score and, and decided on, on placement uh, in the room? Well, it's true. That's what we did, uh, basically, is pull some of the sort of more full-bodied sounds that Dan gave us from the left-right and push them out into the room and into the ceiling speakers. And then there were there were a lot of uh, other instruments that were more sort of uh, virtuoso solo voices, and those we could pan around the room and get some real uh, movement out of those sounds. So we had plenty of stuff to work with from Dan and... and um, not very much time. So we kind of hit with a little pattern that's that everyone was happy with and we just stuck with it until we got to 
uh, until everyone was happy and excited. And I will tell you that some, uh, many composers don't like that pulling it off the screen thing. And the reason is, part of the real world, is that not all the theaters have high quality sound systems in the Atmos system. And generally, the speakers behind the screen are more high quality and more expensive and bigger and more powerful than the Atmos speakers are. So the composers are blanche when you say, oh yeah, we're gonna pull it off the, off the front screen so there's more room for dialogue and sound effects. And they're like, no, no, don't make room for, <laughs> move the dialogue and the sound effects into the room. <laughs> So I've had that experience with several composers. So I don't like to do it that way. I like to represent the body of the score on the screen and then move things, um, important parts of the score out into the room. That's, that's the way we thought it sounded best. Um, I was really struck by the, um, the, the sequence uh, where, how, and, and I gotta ask you about the writing process. As you, as you were going through, did you basically, at every juncture, did you just say to yourselves, What's the worst possible decision that Howard could make right now? There was no, because that would be like, that would insinuate there was like a shot and Freud involved well, in it. He's trying. He thinks he's coming he's up with He's making his best right effort, yes. right, to get out of this hole. Yeah. He wants to, I want him to win, you know what I mean? I, I, um, I, I relate to the guy in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I was saying this earlier that, you know, like when he comes in and he, his day of his auction, he's wearing his suit, mm -hmm. shows up, is that the catalog right there? Yep. Ah, he opens it. Ah, stop right on me. He's so right? proud. Yeah, <laughs> that's you. Met you spend a lot as a filmmaker. You spend a lot of time on something that's very valuable to you. You you put it out into the world. You show up at a film festival in your suit. The catalog is right in front of you. You're like, oh, there's the catalog. And you're like, just like two pages, one page if you're lucky. Uh, and you're just someone. Someone immediately raises their hand. This sucks. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> but that's life, you know, we all, it's very, everything's very subjective. So like, I, I relate, I don't want those things for him, but they, I'm being reminded that that life kind of does that, especially when you try to cheat life, you know what I mean? You try to like get, you know. Shortcut. Yeah, and, and um, you know, this movie took 10 years to, to make. It took, you know, 10 years of not being able to make it for many good reasons, not just because we didn't have, you know, a movie that warranted you know, a bigger budget and things like this, because the, creatively it wasn't there yet. You know, there was, this was a North Star project. You needed to learn about other things in order to make it. And um, that was, that really is where a lot of the writing was informed by. It was really just like spending time, nurturing it, knowing the character in and out, knowing all the side characters in and out. I'll tell you, it was the this most stressful part of the writing process was the basketball player element, because we started writing it for a different player. We got to know that person. So we got to know him so we could write him. Then he, you know, over 10 years, he's not in the league anymore. And like his hair, he grew his hair, he wouldn't cut it. So then we have to look for someone else. Then that became very difficult because every time, you know, we would try to go out to a different player, you know, an agent would be like, just, we'll just do a, 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 a find and replace for every, all the names. It's like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. This is a character in the movie. It's not just like one person. And you got to find their voice. And, and you got to find their games because mm -hmm. we're, inter, we're sure. intercutting the real life basketball games. So it was very, um, it was very, it was very think, stressful yeah. because it was a you know multi week process with each character change, and then we got to a point where it's like, well, let's meet with different players, and the person we respond to most, and Kevin was just an incredible story storyteller, nuanced storyteller who can walk you through a narrative, and 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 feel if you're following everything, and if you're not, he'll address it. Mm -hmm. 
and you, we learned that almost immediately. And I didn't want to get off off the phone with him. And then when we met him for the first time, I didn't want to leave. Mostly, I mean, I and he's super charismatic. The first time I right? met him, I told him, I said, "It's an honor to meet you. I hate your fucking guts," because I hated the Boston Celtics more than anything, and I and I hated him in particular because he really gets under your skin. But that's that's the performative side of him, right. and and I got to know him, and he's, you know, a, a deep, very deep person, obviously. But he's, but he's, there's, he knows he's a great the storytelling element. So then you start to write, you know, in the passion of Kevin. So then you have to write that into it. So every single element you really had to, it was a lot. I mean, it's I'm sure it's uh, overwhelming maybe because it's everything is so. I remember when we first met with Adina Menzel, and I sent her. We met with her, she read the script, and I was like, no, let me send you the character biography. And she's like, oh, you know, this is the character biography. She's like, well, how much of this is going to be in the movie? I was like, well, all of it, but not right. really, you know what I mean? And, and that's so, those are the things that you, that a, a longevity project like this actually come to help it. We're like rewriting it all the time. So, so it was, you know, it, it was, um, like Benny was saying earlier, like it was, he told me, it was like, you know, it was like a thread in a sweater. If something was like off, like maybe like, you know, let's say, Sibo, uh, one of the producers, Sibo, would say, there's something up here, or, or Rudin would say, like, here, raise a flag here, and then you'd pull on the thread to try to fix it. Next thing you know, you got no sweater left. Then that, this character references, this this event on page, this, so you have to then, so, you're trying to reorganize, and you're like, it can't move. It's got to stay there. Sorry, it can't change. <laughs> so, that was, so that kind of was the code of the movie. Yeah. And that, again, that's why, you know, I think the, the sound, the mix sounds the way it is, that the score feels sometimes... You know, like when she's up in the blade, you have that arpeggiator, just like, doo -doo 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 -doo. you know, that's like the world. It's like, oh my God, I'm inspired right now. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And there was, there, and there at the same, there wasn't an obsession to hear everything. Right. Also, we wanted to like, oh, we, that wet kind of synth can't really overpower the, the very specific sound that we wanted of the helicopter from the outside, not the inside. You know, there's like uh, a, you, you did something in the edit. So ben, Benny, Benny and Ronnie edit together, and I just bother both of them the whole time. And Benny did, you know, does these sound these like very intricate sound designs, rudimentary sound. As designs. part of the picture cutting process, yeah. we we we're stupid like Certain that. Certain scenes don't watch, work unless that's we can't. There. We don't yeah. do assemblies. We can't do it. We have to like it has to be. Perfect. It's got to be fully baked. So Benny's like doing like sometimes he's doing. Um, What's the designer's name? Uh, the the uh, Rystrom? Yeah. yeah. He's doing 20 sounds for like Howard picking up a pencil. And, uh, and, and but it's, it's full body and you, yeah. you start to get accustomed to it. So I remember during the chase scene when Howard's running oh, yeah. out of the school, there was a door. He, he built this sound. When Keith opens the door, you'll hear it. I think it's also in Atmos. When he hits that door. when he's when the car pulls up, Bogosian turns the car around and then I noticed also, that. Yeah. The door flies oh. open. It is larger than life. Oh yeah. Well, when I first saw it, I remember with Ronnie, you showed it to us. Yeah. We were just like, oh, it was so visceral. And you really, it's the sound that you would remember if you were being chased by somebody. Yeah, that like, that's happening. This big metal door threw open, and this guy who looks like he would tear my head off is starts coming at coming me. after you exactly i'm really glad that you brought up that sequence because i wanted to talk about it it's it's watching it again it's it's that whole sequence really stands out in in my mind from a sound design and a music standpoint especially I'm talking about you know starting when um you know he's waiting for his kids performance to start he sees the guys in the back he goes and talks to them and then th then we meet bogosian for the first time and i mean nobody can do an icy stare like <laughs> Talk radio 
if anyone hasn't seen talk radio Special in this room, uh, please seek it out. It's his, it's his, you know, everything in my opinion. Yeah. We actually have a reference to it in the movie. Do you? Yeah. It's been too long since I've seen the movie. He, it's, it, uh, Red Rockets Red Glare, I think, says, uh, you're dead, fucker. And yeah. we put that right in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah. That whole sequence, and then of course it ends up with Adam Sandler being put in the trunk of his car in his underwear, <laughs> and then he loses even his underwear. Yeah. Um, but from a sound design and a music standpoint, that, that sequence was just so, like, it was just, just unforgiving. Um, can you talk a little bit about putting the music together for that sequence? Well, I think that cue in particular was a little bit for us like, oh, cool, this is like a throwback to good <laughs> yeah, yeah. time. We, we know how to do this. <laughs> it was the one but, we were least worried about. Yeah, okay. it was like on the list, it was like, okay, well, that'll be fine. Yeah. But uh, it, it still, it kind of, to me, sounds like a very souped up version mm-hmm. of, of, of the good time score. It's even, even sort of more kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's it's less mushy to me. It's more, it's well, really we had, really cut. Just like we had the benefit of working with Sandler after a fifty city tour of his stand up, we had the benefit of working with Dan after his tour with with, with Myriad, okay. where he worked with these incredible musicians. One of them included was Gatekeeper ADR, yeah. who helped build that track. Yeah, so we we collaborated um, with with Aaron David Ross, who's a one of the members of this group called Gatekeeper, that I met like way back in the blog mp3 blog days of the you know mid o's or whatever and they were my favorite band they were great they were chicago music school kids we got in touch we started talking and we're all friends to this day but uh we had such an insane glut of work that had to be done in such little time that some of the um some of the stuff that was a little bit more like I don't want to say rote, but in a sense, it was very much like a utilitarian task. Like, let's at least get some kind of like Tangerine Dream for Sorcerer. Like, let's just get some material in and then let's kind of make it more bespoke. And it's a gatekeeper for that cue and for the Mohegan Sun sequence mm-hmm. yep. were perfect because in a sense... They, their whole career is like the good time score. Mm-hmm. So they're like really, really knowledgeable and really, really natural with that stuff. So they came in and kind of did like a, kind of like a, a wireframe. Yeah. And then, and, then and then I worked with it and I kind of, you know, tricked it out. But it was, um, it was an action cue. So you really, really just have to nail those moments and you have to know when to kind of come down and not... Uh, show all your cards too fast if you know there's a level because you know Ratner obviously stressed out running but then it kind of it kind of calms down for a second as he's trying to engage a little bit in the car and then it goes back up again so and and just to this point I won't edit the scene with music you know I'll edit the scene without ever just so that it will stand on its own and then the music adds something else to it and then also we just kind of Again, Josh mentioned earlier, Skip's reverbs are insane. Like, I don't understand how there's, like, you can actually feel like you're in the room all of a sudden. And it's like, again, in that sequence, he goes from this wooden auditorium to a hallway to a smaller hallway. Then he's outside, and then he's in this car, and then he's in a trunk. And each one was, like, a very... Has a very distinct acoustic signature. And another thing that's very softies to me, and I was just... I've been binging on on, uh, Larry Cohen movies because I've been sick for the last two days. So I'm watching all these Larry Cohen movies, and I'm like, oh, I can kind of relate to these score moments. But the thing is, like, Larry will just very 
quickly get out of it. He'll use it as just a way to kind of either cleanse your palate or set you up for a chase, get the mm-hmm. stuff moving. But the minute there's dialogue, you're out. Yeah. Like, you're done. This is not what you guys do. And, and, and you have, like, a, that expository, the opening sequence of the film is probably six or eight minutes of music. Good Time was like that, too. The cue we're talking about right now. It, the music has to provide the action kind of genre uh, detail, but then it has to somehow persist mm-hmm. through the dialogue and not step on it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky and very interesting approach to genre stuff, I think. Well, before um, we open up and take a couple of questions from the audience, um, I, I do want to, I got I to gotta ask, whose idea was it to have the toilet flush in the hallway outside the, the, uh, the gym showroom? That was my idea. Well, we, we, we went back, because what happened was we went back because we, we watched it. Like, there's something missing. Well, all that stuff was a stage. Yeah. Everything in his business, was all, the hallway yes. was all it was set. A built, it was a built set. It was all built but, set, right. yeah. When we watched the movie back, we're like, there's something missing from these places. It doesn't feel real. So we went back, Josh and I went back to the Dime District and just recorded a ton of sounds. Benny almost got us killed. He was like, <laughs> saw these guys speaking quietly on 47th Street, and he... Dipped his tried to mic them. He stood over and he was like, I stood, I stood next. No, I did. I did from under. So I kind of just went next to them and I went yeah, like this. Yeah, it was this. more like that. And they were having a big conversation in Russian, like about something. And they just looked so at me. It was and about they, uh, I said, yeah. president, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just remember they looked at me and they said, "Can I help you?" I was like, "Oh no, I'm fine." And uh, I just like, okay. And they just kept talking. And so that's in there. That's actually when Howard's. On FaceTime with his son, their conversation is behind them because Warren Warren's like we got to use them. So Warren put them behind Howard as he's on the phone. And I remember when we when we delivered all of those sounds and and, and Warren was so excited. He's like I'm going to put them in Soundminer and we're going to go wild. You know, it's like Soundminer is this in, intense searching program where we had to label all the stuff. But with the toilet flush, we're like when we got to the hallway and we were just recording all these different buzzers. I'm like, wait a second. There's a bathroom in the hallway. You hear the hand and you see it, and, and you see, you see it. Like so it's men's like, on one of that's, the doors. That's got to be in there. It's like you got to hear the toilet flush, and it was just something that was so. It was an obsession to make it seem as real as it was, even though it isn't. You don't actually hear all that stuff at the same time. Of course, but not. I, we felt like you should. I remember there was a thing in New York called the paper bag players, oh, yes. and they do this. Um, they, they they go to schools and stuff like that, and they and they they have the entire auditorium. They do these like sound experiments. And they tell you, I forgot what it was. It was like alligator brushes his teeth or some sentence, weird sentence. Oh, rhubarb and spinach. Oh, sorry. Yes, rhubarb and spinach. And they they start it off and do way. it right now. And they say, <laughs> and they and they get. They said we're going to turn this room into an airport. The little kid, you're like, whoa. And then they do no, it. If, if each then, one of you says it right now, you'd experience it. If each one of you says rhubarb and spinach at your own pace. Let's try At the it, same actually. time, yes. Yeah. So each one of you say rhubarb and spinach, rhubarb and spinach, rhubarb and spinach, rhubarb and spinach. It will all of you together will create the perfect ambient soundtrack to what it would sound like. So of like a bin of in a an big airport. room. So they, if want, you, they don't want to do it. Okay, I can yeah, clearly. But no, but it's none of you will stand out. None of you will stand out. I promise. There, oh, there it is. There it is. It's like, it reaches a. Per- it's like oh wow, there's a thousand people. Yeah, it in just an at some point it just. It just hits, and you're like, oh, yeah, so it's just the kind of, uh, okay. This may be the most useful thing you learn for your next film. <laughs> for, your, for your group ADR, rhubarb and spinach. But the, I, don't know, the I, don't, I don't know if you noticed, but Benny just slipped that reference in that he's actually the boom man <laughs> yes, as well. That's yes. right. Yeah, Benny is the boom operator on the movie, Local 52 right here. Yes. Um, 
But we did, but I also learned a new thing on this movie. It was called Group ADR. Yeah. Or oh, Loop the Group. Best. Loop Group. Yeah. And that was weird. And they were like, I, you know, they originally asked, like, do you want to be there for it? And I was like, well, what is it? He said, well, we get all these actors together and they just basically just improvise, improvise background dialogue. Select thing, which is important. And they looked at me and was like, you don't want to be there. You, you don't want to be there. It's going to be a lot. It's intense. But, but then more, I more, wish more I was there. The producers we, don't want you to be there. And then I ended up, but then I ended up basically creating our own loop groups and our own sessions. So we'd be like, oh, we're, we're booking this person. And then I would be like eight people to the room and you'd do this thing. So it was, it was uh, but yeah, Benny, that, um, that, that, that uh, toilet flush, Benny was, became pretty obsessed with. And then it was also when you're in these showrooms, cell phones are going off. You know, you're hearing this stuff. And it was just, it was a very, it was a very profound thing. When we went there and heard all these new things, it was kind of exciting to be like, oh. The buzzers. Yeah, it had to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to inform the track. Oh, yeah, you the found that, that little high-piercing noise. Oh, yeah, that it was, was an a... accident. I was recording as we were walking into a space. And well, we went in at one point. We went, we got into this elevator and we pushed every button <laughs> and they would just let them record. It was like eighth floor going up. And then we went into this where we just buzzed a bunch of people's things. They said we were with Izzy Aviani, who's a, a jeweler in the Diamond District. And then this one guy just let us in and Benny recorded the whole walk in process. And then we were listening to it. I was listening to it with Warren. I was like, that high pitched sound. We need that because that's the audio alert that the front door is open. That's how it lets you know it's not closed so that the second one can open. And we added that kind of in the 11th hour and that really made the space feel real to us. Yeah, yeah, it did feel real. Let's, uh, let's take some audience questions. Yeah, right here in the middle. Um, well, first I just wanted to say that I thought this was so incredible and I was immediately struck by it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and I, for me, I feel that the film speaks about race and religion and culture in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. And particularly about the divide and also the bond between black Americans and Jewish people. And I was really struck by, towards the end, the scene with Kevin Garnett. <laughs> and he's confronting Howard about buying the Opal for $100,000 and then millions wanting to more, sell it yeah, for a mil like yeah. millions of dollars. <laughs> and then he ends up selling it to another to a black person and making a, a bit of a profit on that. And for me, it, it was such a powerful and telling situation and scene. And I guess my question is just if you guys could talk a little bit more about just how the film discusses race and, and mm -hmm. religion and you know, Kevin Garnett's character. Well, I think religion is, uh, religion just like capitalism is, is a, one of the great myths that we have to survive. You know what I mean? And, and um, I think that the relationship between black Americans and Jewish Americans is, 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 there's a connection there. Don't, you know, I don't know the answers to them, but there is some sort of connection there. And it is, you know, rooted in, you know, early civil rights, you know, NAACP was one of the founders, was a Jewish person. And, you know, they, they there was a, a, a kinship that was formed over one people seeing another people being oppressed and uh, shut out of society and one and and feeling like, oh, hey, we have to stand up for this. So that there is a bond there, but there's also it's also illusory. You know what I mean? It's not it is. It's not the, you, yeah, it's not the same. It's you know? very, you know, very <laughs> different. One people can 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 you know, uh, can be shut out immediately based on skin color, you know what I mean, or uh, uh, skin tone. So, of course, they're not the same, but there is a strange connection there, and it's it's a deep one. And again, I don't, 
I don't know the answers, but I did. It was in the Diamond District. You saw a relationship there, and you saw one that was like, you know, that was symbiotic on some level. It was kind of like, here are the things that, as a you know, you basically try to win your way into society through success, through capitalism, the myth of capitalism, the mysticism of capitalism, the mysticism of of, of jewelry in a weird way, and and um, you know, if you go back to early early Semitic anti-Semitism, early, early anti-Semitism is that the dealing with money was was by the church was considered ugly and disgusting. So only the Jews were allowed to do it in a way to, in an effort to kind of ostracize them. And that, and they just naturally, we just, the Jewish people just kind of naturally moved towards that and made a profession out of it. But it, it ended up, you know, and then in modern society, there were a lot of, you know, certain people get shut out and you think, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get shut out, I'm gonna buy my way in. I'm gonna buy these trophies of capitalism and say, hey, I'm here. And um, you, you, there's a moment in the beginning of the movie where Sandler's character says, congratulations to Cash Out from, he's a, a, he made it. a musician from Atlanta. And he's made it there. And it's like, congratulations, are your parents happy for you? Stuff like that. So there is, there is this sort of like camaraderie of like, let's beat the system together. Um, but it's also like we also, you're selling them shit, and you know that it's not worth. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's tricky. It's a tricky. Did, but we also did say that in Howard's showroom, everybody's the same. You know, because he'll talk to everybody is important in that in that room, and that's I think was what's so special in when we were shooting the scenes. And well, Howard's like, an felt egalitarian yeah, that's, person. You, you feel it? that, and so I don't know. It's 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 and also just with with Kevin, his performance is so amazing because he truly understands the game. Well, and, that's that... And, and that moment when he sets Howard straight, you're just like, oh, okay, I understand this. And when he says a million is more, it's just like... Well, that's the incredible. moment we knew yeah. writing the script. We've a lot and, of time. That that scene was probably written the most and edited the most. And I remember... Because it's the moment where Kevin's character gets to basically say, call bullshit. You know, like, hey, you know, I understand what you're getting at here. But a million is more. You know what I mean? And that's why it's such a deep scene because not everything's being said there, but not everything's being said in life as we go through it. So it's, it, and Kevin in particular, he really globbed onto that scene as well. And he wanted to spend time with it and he wanted to, you know, add his pieces to, you know, to the scene. Because again, like here he is, uh, you know, when I remember when I first started talking to him about, um, you know, history and stuff like that. He's like, you know, I never really got into history. I never really got into history of my people and stuff like that. And, um, and I, cause I said to him, I said, the part of the reason why this character is so attracted to this opal is that it, it speaks to the history of the, of the planet, of the cosmos, of the universe. And it also happens to be something from Africa. And, and he said that he's like, oh, it's interesting because I never really dug deep into it, but I feel an attraction to it. So that's something else he wanted to kind of bring to is that this kind of unknowing attraction to your history and what makes you feel special. So I don't know if I can answer that answer. That's a good one. Uh, we got time for one more quick question. Way in the back. What was the question? Oh, it, it was about, it's the question how was we worked with Sandler, right? Yeah, about how he worked with Adam uh, Sandler. How we got his voice. Even actually how you helped him develop his voice. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Like the actual character's voice or yeah. the accent or... We yeah. we followed we followed a bunch of people in the district and kind of could hear different intonations of what New York sounded like from Long Island from Brooklyn so that was all in there but it wasn't we couldn't really describe what Howard's voice was 
But every once in a while, we would we would say to Sailor, that's not Howard enough. And he would get it and then tweak the, the accent to be right. And it was just, it was always a thing. It was because it was a hard line. There was, there was Howard as a salesman. When Howard is, it is speaking in a sales mode, he kind of gets a little bit more relaxed and things get a little bit more drawn out. And there were two different modes. When Howard's back in the back room, he's a totally different voice, you know? So there were moments of kind of, Howard with his family. Yes, yeah. yeah, there's he has different modes and different kind of. But I, a big part of the when we were getting into the character, you know, we mentioned this uh, legendary free speech uh, person, Al Goldstein, who uh, who um, had a magazine called Screw and, and uh, Midnight Blue, uh, and his there was a fuck the system mentality. We're gonna I'm gonna beat it on my terms, even if they don't want me here. You know what I mean? That that Al Goldstein brought to everything. So Al was an inspiration, and Rodney Dangerfield also was an inspiration. <laughs> this fact that this guy's always on, and he's always looking to make people laugh and feel good. But there's a sadness there. You know what I mean? Like Al, Rodney Dangerfield didn't wasn't in his first movie until he was 61 years old. His whole thing is about getting Think no about respect. that happening this day and age. That's all his thing is he gets a guy no respect. <laughs> becoming a movie star at 61. Wouldn't have. We're not like that anymore. Weirdly, you know what I mean? We're it's weird time, but. Uh, but I, that, those two people mixed with some of the people that we were trailing, there were these kind of uh, guiding uh, lights that were very, very helpful to us. And, and Sandler in particular, the most, we would have one guy named Todd Volpio, we'd have him on set a lot. And he was kind of like our vibe ambassador and he was a jeweler. And, um, uh, and, and he was kind of, he would be on the set a lot, not in scenes, just kind of hanging around. I remember he brought like a client to our fake showroom once. Really? Yeah. But he would, like, he would use jewelry in our fake showroom. I was like, dude, this is a set. Like, please. Vibe, vibe ambassador. That's a job certain, that I want though. He would, he would use certain words. It doesn't pay very well. But he would use certain words to no, describe no. merchandise. Like, oh, that's very soft or milky. And those kind of words, in, they, they transferred how you'll pronounce them, you know? So. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, guys, thanks so much for coming Thank out today you. to talk to us about the movie. Yeah, Josh, Amy, Daniel, Skip, uh, thanks for uh, a great discussion on how to cut gems. Thanks Thank everyone. you, everybody. Appreciate it.